This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This is Richard Lloyd, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here behind the mic at Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood. Thank you once again for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. If you'd like to help out the RNRA, please head over to our brand new website and click on the Support the Shows tab. You can click from there to our Patreon page and make a much appreciated donation. Or if you'd like to grab some awesome rock and roll archaeology swag, click to our T public link. All is at rockandrollarchaeology.com. Thank you. Yes, the counting roll by the drummer, setting a high tempo, a quick and memorable guitar hook. Ten seconds in, and here comes the vocal. No waste, no fat, an immediate adrenaline rush with a dose of radical politics in the message. They told you in school about freedom, but when you try to be free, they never let you. Punk? Well, not exactly. A proto-punk, if you like. Just straight-up rock and roll from the Motor City, if you ask me. Yes, that's the 2018 version of the MC5's American Ruse by today's special guest, Wayne Kramer. If you love The Clash or The Sex Pistols, any of the New York City late 70s punk and hell, all the way to Green Day in the 90s pop punk era, well, it starts here. Wayne was one of the founders, along with Fred Sonic Smith, and part of the twin guitar attack they were known for back in the late 60s. Vocalist Rob Tyner, Michael Davis on bass, and drummer Dennis Machine Gun Thompson fill out the unit. 
no hippie peace and love stuff here. <laughs> These guys were out to start a revolution. Intentionally or not, that's exactly what happened. Adding poet and founder of the White Panther Party, John Sinclair's manager, uh, led the way to street revolution. The MC5 are the only band to perform at the 1968 Chicago Democratic Convention, where baton-wielding police broke up the massive anti-Vietnam War rally that was seen on national television. Like it or not, themselves included, they were the sound of hard revolutionaries in America in the 1960s. In the end, it was way too much a heavy burden. Trying to be a big-time guitar-slinger kid and all that comes with that, plus a revolutionary, created a whole nother level of headaches. After just three albums, with only the first being considered a success, 1972 saw the demise of the original MC5. They disbanded and never performed together again. Tyner died in 1991, Sonic Smith in 94, and Davis in 2012. Wayne survived, but it wasn't easy. Two and a half years in federal custody and a 25-year smack habit didn't help. But in the 1990s, Wayne got it together, signed with Epitaph Records, and launched a solo career. He also began writing soundtracks as a day gig. Now, Wayne has a fresh new autobiography, The Hard Stuff, Dope, Crime, The MC5, and My Life of Impossibilities, from our friends at DeCapo Press. And he's about to hit the road as MC50, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the band. So, diggers, <laughs> let's kick out the jams with Wayne Kramer. Hello, Wayne Kramer. Welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, all right. First question. Uh, why do you think your band, the MC5, that broke up in 1972 has become so relevant in the last several years? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm speculating here. Right? You know, of uh, course. Uh, it may have to do with the MC5 back in the band, we spent a lot of time discussing and finding ways to make sure that our work had historical validity. Mm -hmm. We actually use that term and we would, yeah, we would filter if we're working on a new song, you know, does this song have a uh, lasting, does it have substance? Will it last over time? Or is this just like a trend of the moment? And uh, and that our roots, the the band's the band's sound was rooted in fundamental rock and roll. You know, early Chuck Berry, Little Richard. You know, that Earl Palmer driving beat. Chuck Berry. You know, simple uh, construction, um, but that it was. You know, that it was had one foot still in the black church and one foot in a a cheeseburger. That these basic uh, American teenage milieu was was where it was based even if later on 
Sun Ra was showing us how to take the music into space. Right. It was organized. And then the other aspect may be that the MC5 um, never pulled a golden horseshoe out of our ass. <laughs> we never had a, a big hit record. We never made any money. We remained underground enigma. A cult band, right. For the music business. You know, yeah. we're the band that wouldn't go away. <laughs> right. And, and annoyed the hell out of everybody because we were trying to do something more than just be a popular rock band. Although there's nothing wrong with that. But we wanted to see if we could, I wanted to see what the possibilities were. And we had we had bigger ambitions and bigger goals and you know we thought we could be part of a whole change of a culture uh, a revolutionary re resetting of uh of cultural norms and i think that that uh that the things that we spoke about you know our commitment to to broadcasting the news as we saw it is as important today as it was then over some of the same exact issues yeah, uh, the story hasn't changed much in 50 years, has it? It has changed a lot, but this is an ongoing struggle. You know, we're never going to arrive at utopia. Oh. We're going to make three steps forward and two steps backwards. And at the moment, we're taking a couple of steps backwards. A couple of big steps, if you ask me. Hey, diggers, we'll be right back with today's special guest, Wayne Kramer. But right now, I want to give some insight into an important tool used for making all of our podcasts. We read a lot of books around here at Rock and Roll Archaeology Headquarters, so many that we're always running out of quality reading time and need to augment our process. Guess what? Like many of our favorite rock and roll titles, Wayne Kramer's book, The Hard Stuff, is available on Audible. Audible's an awesome tool for us. Having the ability to also listen to the books we are reading allows us to do more while doing other activities. Audible helps us listen to more books by switching seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where we left off. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. And Audible members get a credit every month, good for any audiobook in their store, regardless of price, and unused credits roll over to the next month. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash rock and roll. That's promo code rock and roll. Or you can text rock and roll to 500-500. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Wayne Kramer. So now you were born into uh, post-war America in, uh, in Detroit where Chrysler, Ford, and GM uh, sure uh, made, uh, you know, every day about mom, the flag, and apple pie. So how did you become a, a red yippie in the mid-1960s? Well, I, I started to see the cracks in the facade. Yeah. You know, the American dream wasn't exactly the way they presented it. You know, that, that uh, people of color weren't enjoying equal justice mm -hmm. and rights and uh, I could see that in, in my own city and different neighborhoods, you know, on the other side of the planet. And there was no reasonable justification for it. I mean, not unlike today. I mean, we've been at war for 17 years in Afghanistan, and the Afghanis have not um, tried to invade America yet. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I think we, uh, we got what we came for about five or six years ago, right? 
Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Why is it still going on? Right. right. Yeah. We, we made our statement. And then, you know, of course, the, the, there's great profit in war and, and uh, it, it uh, underwrites political careers and the, the military industrial right. complex that Dwight Eisenhower warned us about mm-hmm. is, you know, I mean, there it is. There is, there is no coherent policy uh, in place for what we're doing in the Middle East. Um, and ha- hasn't been since the beginning. Right. So, you know, we're not where we were 50 years ago, but we're still facing many of the same kinds of issues. Well, let me, let me ask you about your parents and the house you grew up in. You uh, you grew up in rural Michigan, uh, right at the Canadian border. Border, I think it's called Harsons Island, uh, yeah. especially early on. Uh, and so, so what was life like there in the 1950s? It was heaven on earth for me. Uh-huh. I mean, this is you got a little boy whose backyard is a forest with a swamp on it. Right. I mean, who could ask for more? You know, I'd walk out the door in the morning and the adventure was on. It was Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn every day, huh? It was the best. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just I absolutely loved it. It was it was great. It was came as a a, a big uh, you know it, it was a big deal one day when my mother said you know. We're going to move back to the city, and me and your father are breaking up. I mean, it was like, oh, I can imagine. <laughs> so, did did your parents enjoy music? Was music a part of the house? Yeah, my mother was a. She always sang. She just wasn't one of those women that walked around the house singing, you know. And and she had an accordion, and she wasn't trained or anything, but she would find a way to to play a melody, and she would sing and play and. And, you know, in the World War II era, that's what people did for entertainment. You know, someone could play the piano yeah. and they'd all sit around the piano and sing songs. All those Broadway standards that are the American canon, those were the songs that they all knew and all the war songs and, you know, uh, and, and you know, the, the coming of the electric guitar and radio and, uh, you know, rock and roll changed everything. Yeah, te- technological changes. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, you know, I, I, I say that the electric guitar is, uh, you know, is like the only. It could only be invented in the mid twentieth century at the, the, the middle of the industrial age, and it just has that. It sounds like a buzz saw. You know, it sounds like an industrial machinery uh, put together yeah. uh, in a musical way. So. Yeah, 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 and and it created the, the sound of liberation to me. Oh yeah, yeah. So what was what was your first rock and roll memory that you that you uh, you still think back on? Well, one of them was that I I kept hearing this guitar playing because music was ubiquitous. Uh, if I went out in the neighborhood and we lived it, when we moved back to Detroit, we lived in a retail. We lived on a big street with uh, on the second floor in an apartment over a retail, a whole uh, block after block of retail stores, mm-hmm. uh, clothes, a butcher, a uh, pharmacy, uh, a restaurant, a hardware store, uh, Kresge's, Woolworth's, right. furniture stores. And, um, but, you you know, to go out and play, like to be in a parking lot and, and you'd hear uh, music coming over someone's car radio, for example. I'm playing in the parking lot, but I'm hearing music. People are listening to their radio in the car. And I keep hearing this this furious guitar playing. And this guy's singing about 
a kid who could play the guitar like ringing a bell and uh that people would Jeffrey, be coming right. around to hear and play his music when the sun went down. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking, what the heck is that? <laughs> right. What's going on there? Yeah. And then the more I then I I researched it and I found out the guy's name was Chuck Berry and the song was Johnny Be Good. Yeah. It just sounded to me like, yeah, that's what I want to do with my life. Right, right. Yeah. I'll, Who doesn't? <laughs> Yeah, pretty wild. So now, now your parents split up, uh, I think, when you were about nine. And, and this is, of course, this is in Detroit. So you've moved back to Detroit now at this mm-hmm. point. It was where you really get the exposure to rock and roll. So if you were born in 48, uh, let's see, Elvis uh, shows up on television. Uh, what about about right about that time, about when you're eight or nine years old? Did you did mm-hmm. you catch uh, any of those performances on Ed Sullivan? Yes, of course. Yeah. What's... Uh, they, they were they were mesmerizing. You know, because it, because of the raw sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the music is one thing, but the the electrifying sexuality that he, that his connection with those young girls. You know, he did, and his amusement with himself and the other musicians yeah. was just uh, compelling for me. Yeah, uh, pretty much wiping out the remnants of uh, the old Victorian age uh, there. So, and 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 of course, it's on television, so it's in you know fifty million households uh, all at the same time. Uh, you know, again, technology just bringing it to the masses, uh, including your yourself. So now, I I, I think you and, and maybe Elvis and you being eight or nine or maybe even tense, a little young, but not too far. I think uh, you got into rock and roll for the same reason that a lot of us get into rock and roll, and that's for the women. Yeah, it, uh, it seemed to me that all those screaming girls added up to something. Yeah. And, and plus, you know, I saw it in my, own, in my own living room. My mother was dating a guy who played the guitar and sang, and he'd come over and he'd play his guitar, and he'd sing her a song, and I could see the look in her eyes, you know, that, he was he was winning her over, and I, actually I didn't like the guy much. No, I thought, no, you, you you make that plain in the book. <laughs> yeah, not 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 a great uh, uh, stepfather, uh, if you will. Not, not by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, that's that's always a, a rough time. So, but he did have a guitar, and uh, I think you uh, stole it a couple times and uh, played played it uh, yourself, right? Yeah, I mean it. it that was the the portal that the door that opened that let me into the secret room, you know, of where, where, uh, I, I was able to ultimately reinvent myself and, and find a way out of ending up on the line at Ford's because if you grew up in, in Detroit, yeah, that's where you were going, right? That was your birthright. You know, you, you're going to end up working in the auto industry and, and, uh, and it just was never for me. I, you know, was uh, I was always creative and uh, just saw a different way for myself, and and music became um, the way to to the ticket to the outside world. Mm-hmm. Did you know that very early on, or was it just like you know, hey, this was something to do? Uh, you know, it was the kind of people that uh, you know you were attracted to that also had that uh, love and passion. Uh, you know, or did you see it as uh, an, an escape from uh, the uh, the grind, the conformist lifestyle that existed in America at that time? 
Well, yeah, I did know it right from the beginning because I knew professional musicians. My my mother was a single woman for a long time, and she would date guys. Uh, we knew, you know, guys that worked in clubs, and I I I learned that you know that they lived a different kind of life than everybody else. <laughs> they worked at night, you know, and and they always had thrilling tales of what happened at the club last night and. And you know what so and so was playing that night, and what the, this guy came in, and so and so sat in, and I just I was attracted to the whole world, the whole dark, mysterious world of professional musicians. Right. My dream was to be a professional musician and work in nightclubs. Really, from the from very early on. That's yeah, what you set yourself uh, on track to do, huh? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really. That didn't really escalate until the, the British first wave hit. Yeah, Beatles, and 64, 65. It was possible to write your own songs and and uh, play concerts. Oh, the self-contained unit, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, which the Beatles kind of made popularized, and the musicians all said, uh, hey, wow, well, we can do that. Uh, right. So definitely. So now school didn't go too well for you. Uh, you make that uh, pretty obvious in the book. It, was it was it boredom or was it was it just you know you were off on this other fantasy that you wanted to achieve and uh, uh, or just you know you didn't like the people? Or what, what do you think? I think it's it was a bad teachers. Really, I think yeah. I just think it you know the schools that I happened to go to the the Detroit public schools and the neighborhoods I was in because some teachers that I had that that I knew cared about the kids mm -hmm. and about the subject matter. I did well in their classes, but I remember having so many teachers who just didn't care. They, you know, they come in, here's the assignment, here's the book, and they'd sit at their desk and read, and you're going to, you're going to do your work. You know, teachers that engaged me and, and their, that their classroom was alive with with conversation and learning and, and humor and, you know, social interaction, I did well in. You know, if it was about, like, being in it, I'm in it. Right. But if it's about being in it, then, you know, I'm going to take a nap or I'm going to draw pictures of guitars. Well, uh, I think you left a present for one very special teacher, right? Oh, that one, yeah. Well, I also had trouble with authority, you know. I... I, I Constantly was having these uh, jackpots, these dramas with uh, with teachers, and um, I had a I, I couldn't, you know, in a memoir, you it, it's stories yeah. from a life. It's not the story of a whole life, because I had a lot of trouble with teachers, but I had one in particular that I talk about in the book, and you know, her and I had trouble all year, and she was just a biatch. I mean, she was a foul woman, and uh, she didn't like kids, and she didn't like teaching, and I didn't like her, and w we had even gone to blows at one point. She started grabbing me by my shirt, and I I'm going to defend myself. You can't, you can't, you can't manhandle me without me expecting me to do something to you. Right. And uh, finally, at the, the end of the school year, the last day of school before summer vacation. Um, I decided I would send her a message, and I got a box full of uh, dog turds, and I put on there, uh, to Mrs. Edwards, what we think of you, and put it on her desk as a little happy summer present. 
nice thing, close close to an apple, but you know. You know, I I was an angry boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you you had to pay for that one. I know. Uh, I did have to pay. Yeah. <laughs> so let me let me ask you because you know you have a great description about what it was like to uh, live in fear of uh, of the bomb, and I, I want to ask you about the Cuban Missile Crisis because you kind of allude to that in the in the book. Mm-hmm. Like that's a that was a, a big moment for you that you actually kind of maybe became pretty cognizant of how the world worked and how dangerous it was. Yeah, I uh, the seriousness uh, wasn't lost on me. I, I grasped what was at stake completely. And I, I knew that, that uh, what they were talking about was had the potential to end life as we know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, in, in a short period of time, right. Yeah, that everything could like just turn into the most horrific nightmare uh, that the er- that the world had ever known, and you know to be a kid and to grasp that as being something beyond the control of your parents or local police officers or anybody. Th- these were forces that were larger than we had any control over. Was uh, you know. It- terrifying to the bone you know i mean uh, I, I just I, uh, to lay there as a kid in my bed and wait to see the flash come in my bedroom window like is this gonna is it now or is it five minutes from now you know is, is that's what's gonna happen is the world gonna end right now it's a terrible thing uh, for a kid or an adult it's a terrible thing for anyone to have to consider it's the first generation, you're part of the first generation that actually had to, you know, grow up through uh, adolescence with, with that weight uh, hanging over the head, uh, you know, figuratively and literally. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people forget that, you know, um, that, uh, that this was a constant uh, fear uh, amped up, you know, again, like I said, uh, probably most famously in October of 1962. Um, yeah, most most people don't realize that that uh, nuclear disarmament was a national and international movement before civil rights and anti-war movements developed in the United States. Mm-hmm. The, United, the United States had their first nuclear su- submarines. Um, the British protesters wouldn't let them land in England. Right. I mean, this you know, in New Zealand would would not let American nuke nu- Sub nuke powered subs, For decades. yeah, yeah. I mean, this was a big deal. That peace symbol uh, that comes from the the uh, anti nuclear movement, mm-hmm. the round circle with the triangle in the bottom. That's that that's where that came from, and that was long before Vietnam and civil rights in America. So the siren call. Uh, you and Fred Sonic Smith meet and start playing guitar and. And I, I believe this is pre-Beatles, right? Yes. Yeah. So tell me about how you guys got together and and you know what you what you did to uh, to that that eventually turned into the MC5. Well, I wanted to start a band. I I I started playing the guitar at age ten. So by the time I was fourteen or fifteen, um, I could play a bit. Mm-hmm. I could get around on the guitar. And I knew a few songs, and and I tried to join bands, 
but I was always the youngest guy there. And the other guys were usually older and they could play better than I could. So I decided the, the, the path of least resistance would be to start my own band. Yeah. Asked around at school if anyone knew any kids that might want to be in a band with me. And someone said, there's this kid, Fred Smith, who plays bongos and guitar. And I thought that sounded good. A band could use a, a bongo player. And I liked Fred a great deal. He was, you know, he was a, a smart ass and uh, really had a great sense of humor and always pushed things a little bit further than what was comfortable, you know, and uh, enjoyed his company. And and he had a guitar. So uh, I spent one summer, I'd go over his house every day and show him stuff on the guitar. And he was a <clears throat> able and, and competent and willing student and learned fast. And we just started playing guitars together. And I was playing in a couple, I was playing in a, a couple of bands. And then he got a, into a band on his own. And then at a certain point, we decided we like to play with each other. So we join up. And Fred was going to switch over to bass. He was going to play the bass, and I was going to be the guitar player. But we, we didn't have any money, and, and we didn't have jobs or anything or credit. <laughs> and we decided we'd join up together. And uh, I had known Rob Tyner in the neighborhood for a while. And uh, back then, he was known as Bob DeMiner. And DeMiner was a beatnik and, and, uh, and an intellectual and a real unorthodox thinker and uh, uh, an artist. And I tr always used to try to convince him about how much, how cool it is to be in a rock band and to be on stage dancing and doing your steps, you know, and the lights are on and the sweat and the sound and the kids are dancing. I said, that's great. And he said, oh, that's, that's all that, that's corny teenage shit. You know, you ought to listen to you got to be listening to Mingus, man. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Cannonball yeah. Adderley. Let me show you some Ginsburg here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, one, one day, Rob came over to hear me and Fred play, and, and he said, you guys really play well together. You ought to stay together as two guitars and hire another person to play bass. And he said, I'm going to be your manager. And... We said, okay. And he said, you guys really play well. You're, you're going to, we'll be eating steaks in six months. And okay, sounds good. Hey, no sounds idea. like he would have made a good manager. <laughs> yeah, he was a terrible, he had, didn't, have a, didn't have a clue what being a manager meant. We're all teenagers talking out of our necks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now let's see, the, the Tammy show seems to have been an explosive moment for you. Well, yeah, because here was the template for everything I was trying to do with my life. All put together in a single show, all right? Live, you know, all the musics that had influenced me up to that point, you know, Chuck Berry, the Motown artists, the British First Wave, and, you know, the apotheosis of, of the powers of darkness, James Brown. And the Rolling Stones yeah, on top. The Black Hat, right, right, right. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I went back and saw the show five nights in a row. Really? Yeah. I loved it. So, yeah. so taken with what I was experiencing. So if you had to choose, if I, if I forced you uh, on a desert island between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, I'm sure you would pick the Rolling Stones. 
Well, I probably would, yeah. I mean, just because they were the anti-Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my mother well, liked At the- least that's what Lou Goldham sold them as, but yes. Brilliantly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. My, yeah. my mother... My mother liked the Beatles, so of course. I- <laughs> That's a death nail right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so the Motor City Five. Uh, by 1966, you guys are a real band, and you're you're out gigging constantly. I, but I believe it's it's a four piece at that point, right? Yeah, it varied. It went back and forth. You know, we we were a four piece. Tyner Tyner was going to play bass, and then he quit, and we got a bass player and a drummer. So it was the four of us, and we could play really well together. The bass player and drummer we had were really uh, competent players. Yeah. I mean, they, the drummer was very, he was rock solid. The bass player uh, could swing, you know, had a good tone, understood what he was doing, understood how the bass fit in the music, could could walk the bass really well. Like, we played a lot of Chuck Berry, and, you know, if you can play a walking bass through Chuck Berry stuff, you can really yeah. drive drive the music. And he was terrific at it. And then at one point, Tyner rejoined the band, but now he was going to be the singer. Mm. So that that really was when... when That's an important th- moment, yeah. Yeah, things really started to come together then. So now rock and roll's everywhere and uh, growing in every town. That must have been heady days for you guys. Very exciting. So absolutely wonderful memories of, of being a young guy and, you know getting a booking and then, you know, finding someone to drive us in their car and load up our gear and go over there and set it up, rock as hard as we could. And, you know, just anything might happen that night and the the, the camaraderie and great humor and drama of everything that we were doing was, it was, it was terrific. It was all good, all fun. Uh, And I I think you guys are, are you mostly playing covers at this point? Have you started to write uh, some of the songs that'll end up on the the first album? Not yet. Okay. That was still covers. Yeah. And then, then, uh, you know, at a certain point we changed the rhythm section. Yeah. You, you bring in Michael Davis on bass and uh, Dennis machine gun Thompson on drums. And, and then, you know, I was by then I was 17 and uh, we were, I was I left home. I was living in downtown Detroit in the area, the, the Cass Corridor, um, kind of a poor uh, college neighborhood around Wayne State University downtown. And uh, that's where the artist workshop was and John Sinclair and Tyner lived down there and Michael lived down there. And pretty soon Fred moved down there and. And uh, so we all had little apartments. And then, you know, we started hearing about these bands from California and this whole psychedelic movement was emerging, the the hippie culture. And that's when we started writing songs and, you know, trying to because uh, we had to make a we had to make a, a choice. Did we want to be a cover band and play in bars or where we're going to write our own songs right. and, and hopefully take over the world. Uh, taking over the world sounds far more exciting. Let's see. Play in a bar, <laughs> a world domination. <laughs> bar, world domination. Yeah, that took all of five minutes and probably one joint. So, uh, all right. So tell me about the 1967 Bell Island gig. Um, were, you, were you guys political before that? 
it was was that on the horizon or or was that really just the 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 moment the epiphany that you know set the course on where the MC5 would go I think I think it was a, it was a, it was the turning point you know we were political culturally you know we realized we represented a different generation mm-hmm. you know they uh, had no um, interest in the war in Vietnam or you know we wanted to smoke reefer when grown-ups wanted to drink alcohol and so we saw ourselves as separate um, but mostly as a cultural force it wasn't until you know we started being on the receiving end of uh, police violence and uh, systematic oppression uh, you know, from the Detroit Police Department, um, and then started to, you know, for example, we, at one point we lived, we had a place together. The whole band moved in. We lived in the second floor of a retail structure. First floor had the office of the Detroit Committee to end the war in Vietnam. And one night we'd come home from a gig, and the place is in flames. You know, the right wing. Uh, fascists in Detroit had set the place on fire. So, you know, this stuff polarizes you. This this stuff radicalizes, you know, to, to watch police beat people mercilessly for no good reason. Um, this this radicalized, radicalized me. Yeah. I- me, you know, I grew up with the idea that the policeman was supposed to be my friend. And if I was in trouble, I could go to a policeman and he would help me. And now what I'm seeing is the policeman not only is not helping, he's... He's enjoying beating the shit out of you. Yeah. And your friends. Right, right. So are are you still political? I I don't think you can can ever go back. (laughs) I don't don't think you... Once they've seen the lights of gay Paris... There's no going back to the farm. Right, right. So not only were, you know, the Bell Island gig in 67, but, uh, you know, the, the Detroit um, uh, 12th Street riots in the summer of 67 were um, heinous and hellacious. Uh, and you guys lived through that. And the I think you're the only band that plays at the Democratic Convention of 68 where Mayor Daley sends out the fascist thugs to uh, uh, chase the uh, the kids on national television. Yeah, and, and you know this is this is the thing about those days is is this happened all over America all the time. Uh, police brutality was standard operating procedure. Uh, you know, black people were beaten and murdered regularly. Well, you just got to see it on national television now because it well, was available. It, it started to become exposed with the coming of live television. That event in Chicago, in particular, you know, to have. For, for American families to watch Chicago policemen beating their children for protesting, you know, for being in the street carrying signs, uh, you know, and, and beating them, you know, with a degree of violence that was way out of proportion to any possible crime that could be being committed. Um, that, was a, that was a turning point in America. And today, you know, we see it in cell phone footage all the time, you know, like. Yeah, into the individual level. It doesn't doesn't take a riot. Yeah. And these 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 things have been happening forever in this country. Yeah. Well, 
I say, if you want a good riot, hire the MC5. Well, yeah, I agree, yes. <laughs> so during the Detroit summer riots, you meet John Sinclair. Uh, and I think you also get arrested for basically nothing. The, 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 during the riots, the, the cops actually uh, run into your apartment uh, because of a telescope? Yeah, the army raided our house because... Oh, the army. Said, it wasn't even the... It was like the National Guard. It was the United States Army. Oh, jeez. It wasn't even the National... <laughs> I came out the door and there was an army tank pointing its cannon at my house on Warren Avenue in the city of Detroit in America. There's a, cha- a tank pointing his cannon at my door. Wow. So you really didn't need Sinclair to turn into a radical. No, we, we were all part of the same generation. We were all part of the same uh, uh, community that was international. You know, the kids were taking over the Sorbonne in, in France. Yeah. Mexican students had taken over the universities. Um, oh, Prague, Prague Spring, uh, you know, the troubles in, uh, in Northern Ireland. I mean, this is a worldwide problem, especially in 1968. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Yeah. So you guys just happened to be just in the middle of it, and you just had guitars and a microphone. Exactly right. Exactly. We we had we had a way to carry a message, and and uh, and we we and we saw it as our role. We took it seriously. You know, we we knew that we had a, there's a role that music could play in it, and uh, and uh, and then you know we made some mistakes. And you know the uh, to as time went on and our feelings became more militant and our language became more militant, we embraced the image of the gun and the bomb and uh, uh, violence as a strategy, and that was a terrible mistake. We we didn't think that through well enough. And the trouble is, you know, once you pick up the gun, you don't know how this can turn out. Yeah. You can't predict it. No. no. And um, for the MC5, it, it got us uh, court cases and arrests and, and kicked out of the music business because, you know, the music business wants to make money and sell records. They don't have to deal with lawyers, uh, you know, <laughs> attorney generals and <laughs> district attorneys, levels, you know. Uh, and of course, they got the Black Panthers death squads across America. Yeah. So you guys get signed first to Elektra uh, and then Atlantic Records. Um, and I think you guys signed along with uh, another little Detroit act called the Stooges. The the guy that signed us, the wonderful Danny Fields, asked me if there were any other bands around Detroit like the MC5, and I assured him there wasn't. <laughs> but he did need to hear our brother band, the Psychedelic Stooges, that he might like them. Because they were nothing like the MC5, but he might like them. And Wild in a different way. He loved them, yeah. as did we. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you get on the cover of Rolling Stone. Well, Rob got on the cover of Rolling Stone. Uh, and three classic albums, Get Out the Jams, Back in the USA, and High Times from 69 to 72. Um on Back in the USA, the album was produced by John Landau. How did you guys yep. get hooked up with uh, the music critic and future manager of Bruce Springsteen? Atlantic 
we moved over to Atlantic Records and they didn't quite know what to make of the MC5. So, you know, they were a rhythm and blues house and specialty label. But they saw that there was going to be money in this emerging hard rock, white guitar playing, schlangalang and new thing that was coming up. And so they hired the foremost music critic in America, John Landau, to do an analysis of the MC5. And uh, it was a 10-page, highly detailed, nuanced uh, report, which I have and I've read, and it's brilliant. Oh, uh, I'd love to see that. I, I'm, we're, I think we'll probably uh, make it a uh, downloadable. Oh, that would be awesome. It really is a it's a fabulous piece of uh, scholarship because he accurately, for the most part, I mean, you know, I think he's off on a couple smaller aspects. But in the in the main, he really was able to identify and place in a context the MC5 strengths and weaknesses. And in the end, recommended that Atlantic sign the band that this this could be the archetypal American hard rock band. So this is around the same time that uh, Ahmet had signed uh, Ahmet Erdogan had signed Led Zeppelin uh, yeah. on the British side, uh, a British hard rock band. So you guys were supposed to be the American version of that. Mm -hmm. Wow! Mm -hmm. Wow! All right, so <clears throat> White Panthers, uh, the motherfuckers. Uh, I gotta, I gotta have you tell me the story of the Fillmore East. Well, it's it's one of a number of um, of uh, bad scenes that we had with with our brothers on the left. You know, we we got pressure from the police and parents and prosecutors. We knew we would expect, right? Of course. But what we didn't expect was the intense criticism we got from our own comrades in the in the movements. Uh, there was a uh, a militant group in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, they were an offshoot of the International Werewolf Conspiracy, known as the East Village Motherfuckers. And these were bad dude white boys. They they would fight, and they were not joking. And they got involved in some legal problems uh, due to some violence. And we came to town and we embraced them and we took them up to Boston with us. Uh, As comrades. We, yeah, we, we gave them time on our sets to make appeals for funds from the audiences. And we got down to New York to play our, our big uh, debut concert at the Fillmore East and we they were in the middle of a gigantic uh, conflict with Bill Graham and they were trying to extort free tickets for the community for the community for Graham from Graham and if you know anything about Bill Graham no. you know that <laughs> he's not going to knuckle under the neighborhood no matter stuff. what anybody does yeah, he homie don't play that. No, no, this is a Holocaust survivor. He he trapes across France as a ten year old, but the Nazis on his ass. So Graham gets out in the front of the Fillmore and is fighting with them. Fist <laughs> fighting in the street with the with yeah, the mother. No joke, no joke. I could uh, totally totally happens. Right. We're trying to throw him off his property, you know. Yeah. 
One of them hit Bill in the face with a chain, broke his nose. He thought it was Rob Tyner, the MC5 singer, since all white boys in oh, black leather jackets with, with afros look the same. Right. Oh, that did not go over well. No. No. And you, I think you guys had done a free show for them uh, before, yeah. right? Oh yeah. No. So yeah, so so we played our set which was very exciting but um volatile because the motherfuckers expected us to go out there and tell them to burn the Fillmore down <laughs> afterwards. As soon as we and, leave the stage guys, it's all yours, right? And and Tyner went out and said, "Hey, we came to New York to rock. We didn't come to New York for politics. We came to New York for the rock." And the whole crowd went, "Yeah." Because that's how he felt. Yeah. And he was right to say that. It was his stage. Yeah. And the motherfuckers took that as a slap in the face. So the minute we stopped playing, they jumped on stage and trashed our gear. And then when we get ready to leave, the electorate sent some limos. And when the motherfuckers saw the limos, that symbolized oh, everything. That's capitalism the- with, a, with a big C. <laughs> Just rubbing in their face in it. You know? <laughs> Yeah, not good. And and so I thought I have to I have to cool this situation out. I have to, you know, mediate because the things that they're saying, you know, that we sold out the revolution like that shit can't get repeated because that could undo all the hard work that we put into this so far. And the band took off. They they were smart enough to leave and go to the bar and chase women and get drunk. And I stayed there in the street and wanted to argue with the with the motherfuckers. I'm in the middle of Sixth Street at one in the morning, and it's like junkies and speed freaks and street people, and the motherfuckers are raising all the polemical questions and the ideological conundrums of of, uh, of Marxist theory. <laughs> And the, and, the, and the street people are doing the punching and stabbing, and I'm seeing all this shit happening. And finally, two of the motherfucker leaders came up and wrapped their arms around me and carried me out of the crowd to, you know, a couple Safety. of blocks. Right. The yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to I quote <clears throat> something from the book that I think says a lot about the end of the 60s. And, and, and this, this, um, this uh, particular story um, you know, is a is a microcosm of, of the overall uh, arc. And, and what you said is, and I quote, this was a prime example of the failure of the 60s militant mindset. They attacked their own comrades. We were on the same side, but they turned their revolutionary zeal, revolutionary zeal to, towards us. Yeah, it's a circular firing squad. Yeah, I mean, no wonder the no wonder fucking Nixon won and the right uh, you know rose uh, at that time. And it, you know, it, it's a it, it's a good moment that shows that the '60s ideals, in some ways, you know, failed because you know the team couldn't get together. Um, you know, uh, and you're you're very honest that you you know kind of were along for the party, and if the party changed the world, cool. Um, but, but, you know, I think as we've discussed, you know, picking up a gun and, you know, becoming a real revolutionary, that's, that's a whole nother world. Well, and it's, and it's a whole nother fantasy. Yeah. And, and it doesn't even make sense strategically. You know, I've discussed this in depth with Mark Rudd, the, 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 the Columbia University student that took over 
him and his fellow members of SDS took over Columbia yes. University. Mm -hmm. Mark went on to found the Weather Underground. Yeah. Underground. And this whole question of violence as a as a political strategy, um, as a as a tool for for change, uh, they went the north. They went to the North Vietnamese, and the North Vietnamese said, "Do not embrace violence." A, a nonviolent mass social movement is what will work. They went to the Cubans and the Cubans told them nonviolent social movement. They went to the Black Panthers and the Black Panthers said, put the guns away. We're going with free breakfast. Free breakfast is what's going to win. Guns are not going to win. Hearts and minds, right. Why, why did we all stick to an idea that, that ended up doing the FBI's work for them? We ended up discrediting a legitimate anti-war movement, discrediting a, a legitimate civil rights movement, uh, an anti-nuclear movement, an environmental movement. We brought dishonor on all of those movements with our crazy you know, bomb, bombs and guns and, you know, yeah, we're badass. I mean, this shit is like from television. We're not um, with Fidel living up in the mountains, coming down to the city and making a hit on the armory and then right, running and back. Right back to the hills, right. <laughs> we live in the neighborhood, you know. We're, we're a rock band. We're, we're people around the way, you know. We have to have a different strategy. And, and, and I think I ultimately came to the understanding that, you know, uh, the revolution has to be a revolution of ideas. Mm -hmm. It has to be a revolution born in, in creativity, uh, not in destruction, you know, in eros, not thanatos. Mm. Yes. Uh, that, that, uh, yes. Uh, you know, that there's plenty of change needs to happen and, and revolution can happen, but it cannot be modeled on a Marxist takeover. I mean, look at all of those Eastern European Marxist takeovers. They all ended up in the, the first thing. First thing they did was kill their enemy. <laughs> yeah. The new regime, the people's regime came in. The first thing they did was kill all the spies. Yeah. The yeah. Look at the new boss, same as the old boss. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Well, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the way of Gandhi and King, uh, you know, is the light. And maybe that's a, yeah. a better way to go. So only way to go. You know, yeah. because you will never have more guns no. than the legitimate power. No, no, no you, you need fighter jets nowadays. It's it's ridiculous. So, uh, yeah, you need Sidewinder missiles and, you know, F-37s or whatever the hell they got. And nuclear yeah. air it, carriers. It ain't going to happen. But, hey, you know, uh, uh, nonviolence in the street, uh, you know, uh, shutting down the workforce, uh you know, making things difficult for the wealthy classes, um, you know, through nonviolent actions uh, definitely can make a difference. It's, it's worked twice uh, so in the 20th century. So and engagement, engaging in the political process, you know, I told Tom Morello, in fact, me and Mark Rudd both told Tom Morello one night, if you want to make a difference, Tom, join the Democratic Party and run for office. Oh, that wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, yeah, he wasn't interested. No, no, no. Nah, Tom, he's like you. He wants to be on stage. You know, he'll, he'll, he wants he'll, to rock. He wants to rock. Right, 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 right. That's how to do it. I mean, you know, and you see it now. You know, women, this whole um, movement of women yeah. entering democratic politics is very exciting. And 
and to see young people engaging in the process. I mean, they got there. It's going to be their world. And, you know, it's it's it's, it's at their doorstep now. So do you think being a, a you know at least labeled uh, and, and and let's face it you guys really were you know kind of a political ban added sure. demand uh, that became a weight uh, that was unmanageable I don't know, you can't I can't separate you know the uh, my sense of how it all fit into the larger co- political context from just the music you know it was all it's all the part of the same thing what if there were hundreds of bands like the mc5 crisscrossing the the country at the time music would have been better (laughs) all right the the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long and after three (laughs) albums it's all over for the original mc5 um i just want you to want you to give the diggers your you're kind of 2020 rearview mirror on on what happened. You know, we were five five guys from Detroit, a working class city, <clears throat> who had some big ideas and big ambitions, and uh, and really went for it full measures. Mm-hmm. You know, really jumped into it with both feet, made a total commitment to their efforts. And you know we achieved. We made some noise for a while, and uh, and uh, we're we're a bump on the landscape in the in the the canon of at the moment. Uh, you're highly influential. Uh, we'll we'll get to that here in a bit. But uh, you know, certainly, yeah. At the time, you know, it was not. You know, you you weren't a you know a top ten hit maker. You weren't uh, on par with the the Beatles or the Who or the Stones or people like that. Never happened. No, no. You know, uh, I, I think we, I think we achieved, you know, uh, uh, an appropriate amount of recognition. You know, there, there were some, some challenges inside the band and inside the music itself that uh, we didn't overcome. And I, sometimes I think that could have, that, that could have held us back more than, you know, the FBI did. Um. So the the band uh, kind of peters out. I think you try to keep it going. I think you and Fred both try to keep it going for a bit. But uh, um, you, you know, fall into uh, the habits that happen to a lot of of rock stars, although I think you uh, dove deeper than most uh, and actually end up in in federal prison uh, for for a bit. That must have been really tough. And, and what I appreciate about the book is that, uh, you know, you don't gloss over on that. You, um, uh, you know, you, you actually talk about, uh, you know, what it's like to, uh, to be in federal custody and the, the loneliness, the boredom, the slowness, slowness of time. And, and I hate to delve deep into the, the, the drug haze, heroin, a particularly insidious high, but you went deep into this as well. Uh, and, and for a couple of decades, uh, spending the, you know, I, I mean, I, for those of us who know the rock and roll story, you know, Alphabet City uh, in, in in New York is uh, pretty famous for uh, a place to go if you're, uh, you know, if you're deep into uh, into the drugs. Was. Yeah, at the time. And, uh, and um, so, you know, here you are now, um, you know, uh, you came out of it, you, you know, became damn near respectable i might uh, i might say 
Uh, Downright right. <laughs> that that must have been incredibly difficult to to achieve. As I read in the book, just the, how deep you were in. Took a long time. I, I you know I didn't get sober till I was fifty. Mm-hmm. I'm seventy now. Yeah, so twenty years sober now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah. it wasn't that you didn't try. You tried the, the methadone uh, uh, meth, uh, uh, way a couple of times. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not critical of methadone. I, uh, methadone was an important stepping stone for me. Mm-hmm. I think it is for many people. I see it a lot here in L.A. with uh, young, you know, punk rock types who are, you know, have uh, serious opiate abuse problems. Yeah. Who want to be sober, you know. It ain't just, just punk rockers these days. It's moms and dads and your brothers yeah. and sisters and everybody right. in this country. Right. It crosses all socioeconomic barriers. Um, it's too big a leap to make from one day being a, you know, de- degenerate drug addict and the next day being, you know, fine member of the community and 12 steps. And, you know, it's that's a massive leap. You know, it's a long walk in the woods and it's a long walk back out of the woods. And I think <clears throat> methadone is a viable step in the process. Uh, and it was for me. I was in two different methadone programs, one for uh, two years and one for six years. And it helped me get from one point to the next point developmentally. Mm-hmm. I, I still, even when I finished with methadone, um, I was nowhere near sober. But I was closer than I was before. And, you know, it's, it's progress, not perfection. And, right. uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I, my personal sense is um, we could use more methadone maintenance programs. I mean, listen, if, if, a, if a person finds themselves in a place where they need a powder or a potion to survive for a day, let them have that. This is, <clears throat> I think we can both agree, this is a, 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 a health care issue. Yeah. Uh, and and <laughs> is only a health care issue. Correct. Uh, you know, drugs are ubiquitous. Drugs are with us. They're not going away. Uh, I don't care what you do to try to stop them. So, you know, <clears throat> um, that's the, you know, interdiction is not the, the answer. It's, uh, it's, it's health care. But... <laughs> You look at look at the uh, uh, in in Europe. You know, <clears throat> twenty years ago, the Swiss had a terrible um, heroin problem. Yes, you know, tourists couldn't go to a park in 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 Swiss cities because the junkies would be <laughs> out in front. You know? Right, right. Not, I mean, it was not even around was, the corner. Right. You no, know, it wasn't in the alley. It was right there on the bench in the sunlight. You know. And so the Swiss, being the conservative technocrats that they are, they said, let's bring in some experts to tell us what to do. So they brought in some experts. The experts told them the only thing that will work here is decriminalize, legalize and control this use. The Swiss instituted a program of heroin clinics across the country where you could show up every day and receive your dose of heroin. You couldn't take it home. You had to use it there. If you had to come back twice a day, you could come back twice a day. And in the 20 years since, today, 
the average length of time a person spends today they have no heroin problem right. in switzerland right. you don't see donkeys shooting up on the street in switzerland um the average length of stay in the program is three years in three years someone comes in with this terrible habit they stabilize their lives they stabilize their health first thing they can do is get a job then they get a relationship then they get friends then they get things they're interested in pretty soon going to the clinic every day is a big pain in the ass right detox themselves mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's it's the way of human nature you know people use those drugs to fill up a hole you know and if you if you give them the opportunity to move out of that and the tools and the and the context they will I, I couldn't agree with you more, Wayne. Um, <clears throat> so, after two and a half years in uh, in federal prison, you 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 were busted for uh, a fairly large quantity of uh, of cocaine. Um, mm -hmm. You uh, you kind of get out, and you're a bit of a legend. I mean, you're, you're working with Johnny Thunders of uh, the New York Dolls. Uh, you're called out in a Clash song, "Jail Guitar Doors." Um, that must have been pretty wild. Well, you know, I was so disoriented. Prison, you know, the prison experience it, it just, it fucks you up. Yeah. You know, you, you cannot serve a prison term and not come out of it with some degree of PTSD. Right. It, it, even as the short time that I was down compared to the kind of time that people that I work with today that I that I know my friends and time that, they, that they've done, um, you know, you, you're in another universe. You know, you, you, you live in a place where you're never safe. You're surrounded by dangerous people. And things can jump at you out of nowhere that you can never expect. And those big, tough prison guards, they're not there to make you safe. No, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're there to, to keep themselves safe and make sure you don't get out. <laughs> right. And, and many of them see see their jobs as it's their job to punish you yeah. and and i and i told corrections officers you know i didn't come to prison to be punished i came to prison as punishment right it's not your job to punish me having to live here is my punishment and i'm sure it was so so you come out and it takes you a while to, to, to figure out how to get along in the world. You know, your, your, your nerves are on edge. You're, you don't know how shit works. I, when I came out, I went to make a phone call and I put a dime in the phone. <laughs> and it gone up. <laughs> trying to call my girlfriend to pick me up from the bus station and I can't make a call. And I said, what's wrong with this phone? I try another phone. It doesn't work. And the guy next to me says, what are you doing, man? I said, I'm trying to get his phone store. It's a quarter. No, it's a quarter. Well, <clears throat> you finally leave New York, uh, head to the Keys in Florida, uh, then to Nashville, then to L.A., and you you kind of get it back together uh, here in, in Los Angeles. Um, it's quite the redemption story. Well, it took it took me a long time. I, you know, I, I was out there a long time, and I, I thought I could run my own show. 
uh, and I just finally hit that point of uh, of uh, incomprehensible demoralization. Right. You know, that that circumstances reduced me to uh, to the truth. And the truth was that, you know, I couldn't control my behavior and I couldn't control my my uh, activities and, and I couldn't control my drinking and I couldn't control my drugging. And I asked uh, a, a man to help me. And I was lucky a man was there and he was willing to help me. And and he did. And, and then I met a bunch of other guys who were also willing to help me. And, uh, and uh, you know... It's uh, I, I I know a little bit about addiction. I know it's a complex, chronic mental disorder, and um, it shapeshifts over time. Um, you know, you're dealing with human beings and uh, you know emotions and and uh, the entire the entire range of human experience. And there are techniques available. There's help available. Science is is on it. Yeah, you know, better all the time. All the time. Um, but it, you know, it's a challenge that we're going that's going to be with us for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, maybe one day they'll invent a a uh, opiate like substance that won't be addictive, or an alcohol like substance that won't destroy your liver. But they have a jet, and uh, so in the meantime, we we've got to figure out ways to to coexist peacefully with these substances. Yeah, as I said, they're they're going to be with us uh, no matter what you do. So we need to learn to live with them. So yep. in the mid '90s, <clears throat> you you find your voice again. Um, unfortunately, when uh, an MC5 reunion would have been perfect, um, Fred and Rob pass away. Um, yeah. You mentioned the, the two deaths. Um, uh, do you think that all rockers have a hard time? Well, first of all, you, you, you mentioned two deaths. Yeah. And the second being obvious. Uh, and the first one is the loss of youth. So do you think all rockers have a harder time with the first? I mean... Especially since our identity is so closely tied to youth. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a youth focus um, deal. They may, I mean, I don't know. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect, you know, when I, I, see I read that, and I, I felt like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't think I've gone through that yet. <laughs> when I when I see guys in their fifties, you know, with with weaves. And they're holding on to their hair, and they got the gear, and they're, you know, like... Yo, you don't need bro. all that shit to rock, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the train left the station. I don't know if you noticed it. Yeah. Now, you know, there's another thing in the book that you... You're 70 in. years old now, bro. Yeah, there, there's another bit in the book that I really loved. It's like, you weren't quite sure how to be on stage anymore. And yeah. you, you kind of stood up there with this growl, this... This, this grimace on your face yeah. for, for the longest time. But I've watched a couple of recent videos and you're back to swinging that fucking ax all over the place, man. Yeah, I'm a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm clowning. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So, you know, like I said, incredibly honest book, Wayne. There's no pretensions. Uh, pretensions. It's raw. And the, and the ink is mostly pointed at you and your own faults. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's just, it's just, you know, really refreshing as, as an autobiography. This is, it's not ghost written. You, you wrote it yourself and, uh, it's, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very fair account. I mean, you know, uh, you know, obviously memory is, you know, different people experience life. And I, I think if, you know, Fred and Rob, um, had, uh, the chance to write a book, it might be a little bit different, the history of the, the MC5, but this is your story. It's, it's, uh, it's about you. So l- let's talk about the upcoming tour, MC50. I can't believe it's 50 years. And it just drives me crazy though, when I think about yeah. it. So, so it's, uh, starts next month in Florida with 35 dates around the country and fittingly ending up in Detroit at the, uh, end of October. Uh, you just put out a newly recorded version of American Ruse, uh, which is fucking awesome. Uh, tell us about the band you're you're taking out on the road. Well, I've been um, graced with uh, wonderful players. Uh, I, I when the idea first started to to take shape, I, I knew that you know I I haven't toured for maybe ten years, something like that. Yeah, because you, uh, and, you've been making a lot of uh, uh, soundtrack music these days, right? Yeah, I, I write music for film and TV for a living. I mean, that's how I pay my mortgage. But five years ago, I had a little boy. And uh, and so I didn't want to tour while he was an infant. You know, I want to be there every moment. The, the first five years are crucial in the child's development. And he needs his mom and his father all the time. And now he's five and... and uh, you know he's he's starting to get his sea legs, and he's you know he's who he is. He's his own man, yeah. and and he's still my son, and he's still a five year old. But I think I can go away for a couple months now, and and uh, I don't know. We'll see. I hope I hope I don't miss him too much. Oh, you'll miss the hell out of him, and uh, <laughs> you know may, maybe he can get out there on tour uh, uh, every once in a while. We're we're making plans so that we don't have to go too long without being together. So, um, I, I, you know, I haven't toured in a while. I, you know, I don't know if I'll tour again. You know, I'm 70. I mean, I like my life here in L.A. I like scoring. Um, I don't like living in airports and buses. But I like playing music for people. So, uh, so I'm going to go do this. And if I'm going to go do it, then it has to be fun. Right, right. I mean, money aside, you know, we all have to pay the rent, but I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing this because I like playing music for people. Right. And I like playing with other musicians. And and I like the idea of celebrating the MC5's music to a whole new generation of, uh, of listeners that never saw this music performed live. Um, I think it holds up pretty well. Um, so when I went to try to figure out who to hire in the band the criteria was first and foremost are these good people are these people i enjoy their company i like to be with them because touring's hard you know and and sometimes you don't get enough sleep there's a lot of dead bodies on the road yeah, and the food is shitty, and you know, you, sometimes you got to get up early, and you sometimes you go to bed late, and and I want to be around people that can roll with it and and keep a good spirit about them, and and uh, 
you know, this this is too hard. This work is too hard in the first place. Yeah. To put up with assholes and drunks and prima donnas and ego trippers. So that was my criteria, you know. Then I went through who, guys. That, who do well, I you know? Wiped out ninety percent of the musicians right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clear the slate. <laughs> Call it the no dicks back. allowed. <laughs> no dicks. So, so um, then I started calling guys, and it, as it turns out, you know, I got uh, uh, Billy Gould on bass from Faith No More, right. who's just a wonderful musician and brilliant fellow, and Don was playing bass. Can't Don and that. I worked. Yeah, we've worked together for 30 years now, and I absolutely adore him. I have two drummers. I have uh, uh, Matt Cameron from Soundgarden and um, Brendan. And Pearl Jam. And Pearl Jam. Um, And on many of the shows, we'll have two drummers and two bass players. Just because I love the sound of Make it heavy. (laughs) Lots of bottom. Lots of bottom, right, right. And I, on guitar, I got the the great Kim Thiel. Yeah. And uh, Kim, I've I've worked with before and, and known for years, and absolutely adore. And uh, he's a brilliant cat, and a strong guitar player, you know. And and uh, we're, we're really kind of we're learning together how to play together. You know, it's a complicated. It takes time. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have our secret weapon in Marcus Durant, you know, the, the six foot seven um, giant voiced uh, behemoth from Zen Gorilla. I mean, he's he's scary good. I mean, he's just like, God damn. Uh, he's one of those guys he can scream all night and then not be hoarse the next day. Right, right. I mean, right. unbelievable. I don't. I've known other people that can do that, and I, I can't do that. It's, just, it's amazing to me how they do it. But and and Marcus kind of grew up with the MC5, and you know, what I mean, he he looks at it as as almost biblical that now he's he's singing these songs. You know, oh so, yeah, I bet. And everybody has their own connection to the music of the MC5, apart from their relationship with me. Uh-huh. You know, like they all need to pay the rent, but that's not why they're here. They're here because this music is important to them, and they want to be part of it. And and to me, that's that has more value than anything. So I've got a great band of, of brothers that that, uh, that that believe in this music and and want to perform it uh, true to its spirit. You know that you know this is not like a cover band. We're not we're not learning these songs and going to go play them exactly the same every night. That's not what the MC5 did, you know. Yeah, and that was never the case, right? Right. The biggest part of what we do is improvisational. Well, I can't wait to see it. Uh, I think you're coming to San Francisco on October 4th, so I will definitely make plans to to be there. So, uh, another question from the rearview mirror: uh, How does it feel to come in uh, to being 70 and having such a bright future for such a young man? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can't I mean, claim father and uh... listen. I can't claim maturity. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it is. I know what it is, and I'd like to think I'm moving in that direction. All right, last question. Okay, how is it a pinko commie 
and a fucking right wing Nazi are still friends. And I, I'm talking about Ted Nugent. I, I know what you're talking. <laughs> you know, it, it. I think it speaks to the the uh, the power of the art. Yeah. To bridge um, huge gaps in in people's understanding, because. You know, Ted and I, we grew up together. We started out together. You know, I was militantly political before he knew what the word meant. Right. And then he, he then he discovered that, that you know, being a right-wing extremist gave him a new voice and a, and a way to participate in the, in, the, in the conversation. But we still have the, the, the guitar between us and the love of certain musics, and we have this history. Um, and somehow I think that overrides um, things he may say or do. You know, he does a lot of stuff that's actually really good that nobody knows about, you know, working with children. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he actually contributes to the world. I mean, I, I, I you know, he... He, he can't. He doesn't seem to be able to speak without hyperbole. <laughs> it was his act. <laughs> he has some kind of thing where he just it clicks, and the only thing that can come out is hyperbole. But he doesn't talk like that with me. Right. You know, we have we we talk kind of guy to guy, and uh, and I, I don't know. I'm just trying to understand it better now myself. He loved the book so much that. Uh, I asked him if he'd write me a blurb, and it, the book blew him away. He was so oh. impressed with it that, uh, I, uh, you know, he just, it surprised me. Well, he may be a right-wing asshole, but he sure is a fucking great guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne Kramer, it's been awesome having you with us today on Deeper Dicks Thank and you. Rock. Thank you. Happy, happy to have spent the time with you. Some folks assume it's Iggy and the Stooges as the fountainhead to punk. But as you've just heard, first Elektra and then Atlantic thought the MC5 was the new sound of American hard rock. Regardless, Detroit was the perfect place for all that radical raw power to be born. Both bands were there together at the start. Unfortunately, it would take almost a decade for this music to be taken serious, first by kids in the Bowery of New York City, next the London Underground, and finally the world at large. As you just heard, Joe Strummer of The Clash wrote a song about Wayne in 1977. He knew where these musical origins came from. It was a great honor to have Wayne Kramer on our show today. Go out and get his book, The Hard Stuff, Dope, Crime, The MC5, and My Life of Impossibilities. It's a clear-eyed account of his life and times. It's in no way sugar-coated, and Wayne takes full responsibility for his missteps and mistakes. No rock star ego trip here. Raw 
just like the music. Finally, the MC50 celebration hits the road September 5th, 2018 in Florida, crisscrossing the USA through October, then on to Europe. Go to mc50th.com for more information. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Oh, yes, and kick out the jams, motherfuckers. social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.